so much appeal. A great place to get a seafood meal. Miami. Miami, Miami, you've got style. Picture it. Baltimore, 2017. Welcome to Out on the Lanai, the only Golden Girls podcast you will ever need to listen to. I'm H. Allen Scott, and today I'm on a very special golden assignment in Baltimore, Maryland, of all places. I was born here, but I'm not here to, like, walk down memory lane and stuff. I don't remember anything about this goddamn place. It's a beautiful city, though. I am here because there was an amazing exhibit last night. It's happening all month. It's called MiamiIsNice.com. We've talked about it on the podcast before. Oh, my God. I was out here for a very cheesecake conversation with former Golden Girls writer Stan Zimmerman, also a guest on the podcast. And this MiamiIsNice.com was it's an art exhibit basically inspired by the Golden Girls. It's it's a group art exhibition, queer performance series, and also a gay wedding celebration inspired by the Golden Girls. Now, the organizers of this, Zach Handler and Nick Horn, they are the married couple. They're married now. Congratulations to them. They're amazing. They're so sweet. They're so nice. And they brought together such a beautiful group of people to an artist to really sort of dive into and, and be inspired by the awesomeness of the Golden Girls. If you guys, as you know, are Golden Girls fans, if you guys come to this exhibit, which is still going on and by October, October 28th, that's the last day for it, you'll be amazed. They recreated Blanche's bedroom. There's photos on my Instagram of the bedroom, and there's even a survey on my Instagram story today. If you listen today, go to my Instagram story and vote whether you can handle it or not. It's an inappropriate photo. You'll love it. You'll love it. There were so many cool things at this exhibit, guys. I can't tell you how awesome it was. It's just a beautiful city, beautiful night, beautiful people. We, Stan and I had a live conversation, which you're about to listen to, that went from funny to serious to political political to the importance of the Golden Girls today and the state of the politics that we are in right now. I mean, just such an incredible, alive audience of people who are woke and they really just wanted to engage with other Golden Girls fans for Golden Girls trivia, but also because of the importance of Golden Girls and what it means to us as queer people, but also what it means to us as just sort of a fan base and 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 what we think of the Golden Girls. It just was such an incredible night. I can't tell you guys enough. Go to MiamiIsNice.com to check out more about the exhibit and what they're doing and to support other artists who are really doing amazing things. And the conversation you're about to hear was recorded live. So keep in mind that, you know, some things we might not be heard or some things might be back and forth or whatever. But this come along for the ride because it was an incredible ride. There were some people in the audience, there were fans of the podcast who came from like Delaware and Connecticut and other eastern states that are seem really far away, but I think are maybe like 45 minutes. I'm not really sure. Uh, but they were incredible. There was one woman who had these 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 pants on with like the cartoon faces of the girls. There was another woman who wore like a print dress with like with, with the banana leaf. Uh, it just I can't. I can't with how awesome these people were. It's just such a great group of people. So you're going to really love the conversation. Again, it's with Stan Zimmerman, former writer of The Golden Girls. He wrote some of your favorite episodes of The Golden Girls. And he really sort of dives into a lot of the... He dives into some of the things we covered before on the podcast when he was a guest, but also some new things and some new perspectives about where he is and what he thinks about the state of television and, and if maybe another Golden Girls-like series would actually be able to exist on modern-day television. Or are we too prude now for that. Who knows? So listen to the conversation and let us know your thoughts. Go to facebook.com, Twitter, Golden Girls Pod on Twitter, facebook.com slash Golden Girls Podcast. Let us know what you think. And as always, remember, stay golden. How amazing is this? This is so great. Have you seen that bed? Like... I literally, I, we, we walked in here earlier, and I wanted to take off my clothes. I'm a, I'm a bit ashamed that there isn't a mayor on the ceiling above it. Because anyone who knows a true Golden Girls moment, when she needed to check her makeup, she wouldn't look forward, she wouldn't look to the right, she would look straight up. Which is amazing. Personally, I don't want to see myself like that. I've seen myself spread out, and it's, it's like I'm melting. Um... Guys, I'm so glad to be here tonight. This is so great. I, I'm very excited. So this, the man who really is sort of the celebrity of the evening is, I'm grateful to call him a friend, but also um, he had some notes that he wanted me to say about his introduction. So um, like myself, me, 
uh, we're both Jewish. We're both single. We're incredibly talented. Single. We know a lot of people. We're single. And we're attractive. Guys, put your hands together for Stan Zimmerman. Yay! And we're going to be sharing a mic. It's going to be very intimate. Very, very intimate. Hi, Stan. How are you? Get around this. Okay. Did you have to say that five times? Thank you. All right. I, 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 asterisk. Okay, here you go. I'm going to take my jacket off. And this, uh, this shirt, this is actually the original sweatshirt they gave us for the first season as a gift. It's never been seen or worn in public, so you're all popping my cherry tonight. So there you go. How do you like that? Hey. Yes. Wait, no. So, so it says on the back, Wit Thomas Harris Productions. Oh. What do you think of that color on you? I hate the color, and that's why I never wore it in public before. But then when I saw the beautiful colors that you did with Miami is Nice, uh, thank you for all your beautiful hard work. Everyone has been so wonderful. Uh, and thank you for inviting us down here that I knew I had to wear this tonight. Yeah, it's, it's really great to be here. We're both, I think I can speak for both of us, how grateful we are. I mean, both, um, Stan, of course, has a much longer history of Golden Girls love than I do because I just do a friggin' podcast. How many of you listen to the podcast, by the way? Yay. Well, then you know you've heard Stan on it before and many other Golden Girls writers and actors and people who have been on the podcast. So um, this is a really great opportunity to sort of get to know a little bit more about the Golden Girls, and we're going to have a bit of a conversation, and then in a little bit, we're going to take questions from you guys, your burning questions. The one question I think every Golden Girls fan or every, every Golden Girls VIP person doesn't need to be asked anymore ever is what Golden Girls you are. I think we can retire that question, don't you think? Because, like, we're all of them. We don't need to pick anymore. This, we don't need this. Do you agree? Well, I think there's something about identifying with a specific character, but I... Oh, now you're going to ask the question. Uh, I, I, as I said earlier today, I feel like I'm all four of them on different times of my life. I would love to be a Blanche, so I'm working towards that uh, in my old age. Um, but I think Sophia, only because I have a personal connection to Estelle Getty, and we connected from the very first day I met her. So she was is always dear to me, and she came to my 30th birthday party. I was like, who is that short little woman walking in? And she's teeny, teeny, tiny. And it was Estelle, and it was very sweet. And she'd invite me to her house. I went to her birthday at this apartment on Hollywood Boulevard, across from that park where they grow gardens. And we're sitting there, and, and suddenly in walked Rue McClanahan and Betty White together. Like, did they drive together? How did that happen? You're like, hey, Betty, like, I'll pick you up and we'll go to, you know, Estelle's birthday at her little apartment. And it was uh, on the second floor. And we're just sitting there and they walked in. And uh, so they're, they're, she's a cool lady. That's, that's great. Um, so Stan has a, as a comedy writer myself, TV writer, comedy writer, you know, getting started in the business is is a really hard thing. It's something that you don't think about breaking on when you're in your early 20s to a show that a network is throwing all kinds of money at and is hugely famous, and it's dealing with four massively famous women. And Stan's early career is essentially that. He had, he, you, I mean, you were, what, 23 when you, 20, early 20, even lower than that when you got on the Golden Girls. And so can you explain a little bit about how you came to writing on the Golden Girls? Uh, I had, my writing partner Jim Berg and I were writing a lot of spec scripts and we got on a show called Just Our Luck, which was a horrible show. I'm, on ABC, uh, it got canceled very early on, but we got a bunch of pilots. And then we were uh, writing episodes on shows. We did uh, an episode of Fame that Debbie Allen directed, and actually Janet Jackson did her first music video on the show. Yes. I heard, well, I live near the Hollywood Bowl. I, can, I heard her from my friend. I heard you screaming. I wish you had kept it down a little bit that night. Um, and then we were going to write an episode of this Valerie Harper show, and we had to call them and say no, because 
we were asked to come in and pitch for the Golden Girls. And what you do is you go in and you pitch, we work on ideas. And uh, we came in and nervous is all fuck. And uh, although at that point the show was not on the air, so we didn't know. It was just a show about four older ladies. So we didn't know anything. And we pitched a bunch of ideas and they said, no, 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 no. And we're like dejected. And I remember walking to the door and in the doorway, something came over me. I flipped around and I said, uh, what if Rose's mother came to visit? And it's like, everything went silent for a second. This is how I remember it. And they said, sit down, come back to the couch. We went back to the couch, and they said, there's something in this, and we started beating out, which is figuring out the beats of the story, and they said, you have the episode, go write it. And this was in the first batch of them, and we would go to all the tapings to watch the show to know what the characters were doing, and we wrote it very early on, and they loved it, and they brought us right on staff, and they changed, usually... Scripts get rewritten a lot during the week, and this script, for some reason, just stayed the same. It's the one when Betty White's mother came to visit and Blanche dates a younger man. And uh, we got nominated for a Writers Guild Award for that, and that was crazy, because it was the first season and all that. And we, I remember going, and uh, they sat us at a table, like, almost practically on the stage. So in my little 20-something-year-old mind, I'm like, we won. We're up close. They put us up close because we won. We lost. Uh, But it was still such an honor to be there for that experience. Now, there's, I mean, there's a queer angle to the Golden Girls. That's, there is, yes, very queer. Uh, That's very prominent, which is why so much of the audience identifies in sort of a very queer identity, myself included. And... I think one of the things, I mean, beyond that the first episode had an openly gay character, which was very rare for a network television. Coco. Co- long live Coco. He's still alive, okay? The actor is still pushing. Um, but beyond even just the representation of Coco, what the show represented became a focal point for queer identity. And what I think is so interesting you know, knowing you and, and just coming from where I come from as a gay writer working in Hollywood, it's not always easy, even now in 2017, to not be labeled or pinpointed as only a gay writer or only this, and you're, 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 you're seen in only one-dimensional way. And when you started on The Golden Girls, it was a different time, and, and there was a whole different playing field. I think a lot of people think, oh, it was a very gay-friendly show, it was a very open staff, and I think if you could maybe elaborate a little bit on what it was like in 1985, where when you were writing the show, what the writer's room was like and how queer really was it. This shocks a lot of people, but we were not allowed to be openly gay on the show. We were told by agents and people in the business, you can't say you're gay. I know everyone thinks it was just a big gay show, and we're just like being gay all the time there, but none of that happened. So literally in the writer's room, we'd come back on after a weekend and people would say what they're doing and I couldn't say I went to a gay bar. I couldn't talk about it. If we had an event with the show, I had to bring a woman as my date. I could not bring, a, if I was dating a guy or wanting to date a guy, then I couldn't bring him. I said we're single. We're single, yeah, okay, you said that, okay. And um, so it was a whole different feeling back in, and it's hard for people to understand that because we've gone through, luckily, like when I wrote the Lesbian Kiss episode on Roseanne, and then Will and Grace and Ellen and all those shows, you know, we've come a long, 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 long way. But at that time, it was not known. Eventually, like um, uh, Barry and Mort, writers on the show, we became friendly with them and they knew. And as I've told you on your podcast, the story of the very first day on set and Estelle Getty comes up to my writing partner, me and Jim, and she's like, come here. And she pulls us behind the set and she says, "Um, I'm one of you. And we're like, what? And we thought uh, she meant Jewish 
but she meant gay. And because she was on Torch Song Trilogy and she had, you know, spent so much time with Harvey Firestein in that show, she considered herself part of our tribe and she really welcomed us. But it was a, a feeling of, I'm going to keep your secret here and you're safe with me, which was immediately, I'm getting chills right now, but I feel like she's here with us, that she really took us under her wings and I'm going to protect you guys and... There was just this love there, and immediately she was like, she's my girl. Like, I've got your back, you know, you've got mine. And I thought that was super cool of her to do that. And I think that's even emblematic of spaces like this. You know, you have, you, we need places and safe spaces to be queer and to be open and to have a community of people that accept us and love us. And, you know, when we watch The Golden Girls, we get that. We get that safe feeling of you get me, I get you. It was very much like you were saying with you and Estelle. And I think having exhibits like this is actually very helpful for at least the Baltimore queer community, which I don't know much about, but my grinder is blowing up. Um, <laughs> And, 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 I think, and, I, and I think that's a really beautiful thing. And the fact that in 1985, Estelle, being where she was, the life that she had come from, the age that she was, to identify that just shows that love does really sort of transcend in a lot of ways. And it transcends past age, and it transcends in so many different ways. And it was, it's, I love hearing that story because it makes, I think, gay audiences that, and queer audiences that love the Golden Girls love the Golden Girls even more. But you also have to remember it was the time of AIDS. And I remember when on a Monday someone said, well, what did you do during the weekend? And I said, well, I went to a yard sale in Silver Lake. And they're like, what kind of yard sale? And I said, well, I think someone had died of AIDS and they were selling their stuff. And, they, and the room just got silent and they said, you've got to burn all of that stuff. So remember, this was a different time then. And it really freaked us out because we were looking up to, we were very young and we were looking up to these people and we're like, I don't think that's true, but yet I couldn't say all that I knew about my friends that were literally dying at that time too. So it's so great that a show like Golden Girls tackled issues like that at a time when people weren't talking about that on television. Yeah, and the, I mean, that, that particular episode, which is my favorite episode, the one where Rose almost gets AIDS, it's, I mean, it's, they do a good job of it being comical, but at the same time addressing a very serious issue. And on the podcast, we had Tracy Gamble, who wrote that episode, and he had, he had mentioned that his mother had gone through a very similar experience, and that was the inspiration for where that storyline came from. And what's interesting, I think, about that is, think of shows today, you know, shows on television today, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, you think they would address a character getting cancer in a funny way? No. Or would they address a character, you know, having a, a breakdown or having some problem? They wouldn't do it because it just wouldn't fit into the mold of the comedy that we're in. And in a lot of ways, I think we've gone backwards in some ways about what's allowed on television. And the Golden Girls, in a lot of respects, I think because of the four women and them being older, they were able to tackle issues that no other... Cheers wasn't tackling AIDS. I mean, they had one, I think, episode where they did, but they weren't doing it in a way that the Golden Girls were able to do it because of the women. Why do you think the Golden Girls were able to do storylines that other shows of the day and since have not been able to do? Well, twofold, I think... Uh, they were older women, so it was, in a way, safer. Yeah. And they could talk about sex because people think, well, old people don't have sex. And so we could say things through their voices. Uh, the other is that when you have a successful series, you are able to do much, much more than when you're doing a new show. And you also have to remember, back then, we didn't have the Internet and ratings listed online. So when the show started, first of all, no one thought anybody would watch a show about four old ladies. So it came on the air. Boy, were they wrong. Yeah, slightly wrong. Um, and uh, so at the table reads on Monday, they would read the ratings from the following week. And so they would say, uh, we're number 25. And everyone would be like, oh my God, we're 25. And screaming and happy. And the next week it'd be 15. And then five. And then suddenly we're one. And we're one. And we're one. And I remember being in the elevator with B. Arthur. And we're all looking. And well, then I looked down at her feet. She doesn't wear shoes. But you know that story, right? 
Yeah. And it, well, she, for some reason, she doesn't like to be the closeness of a shoe. I don't know. But I looked down, and it was literally like a hobbit or something there. To me, it was like hair and nails, and I, I never looked back down. Um, and I was always petrified. I'm in an elevator with B. Arthur. I, I just froze, but I, I later learned that she was actually very shy and just a little bit scared of people and conversing, and a, a really actually a sweet, sweet lady. I, uh, my favorite meeting of a Golden Girl story ever, of course it wasn't when it was, the show was on the air, but years ago, B, or, uh, Rue McClanahan had... She was releasing a book. She had a new book that came out. And in New York, I was living in New York at the time, and instead of, like, having a release at Barnes & Noble, like most authors do, you know, they have book signings. No, Rue McClanahan had her book release party and signing at a gay bar in Chelsea called Barracuda. <laughs> and <laughs> I was there, and it was amazing. Oh, so good. Um, so... I love Rue. Rue actually, what to me, was the real actress of the group, and she was very serious about her acting and was the only one of the four that would come up to us on the side and want to talk about character and development. And uh, that's why we decided to do the episode Adult Education, because we like to challenge characters. So we thought, well, she's all about sex, so what if we challenged her with a teacher that said, I'll give you a good grade if you'll have sex with me, and suddenly what would she do about that? And she loved that because it really, she loved to get into the meat of the character. And a lot of times on sitcoms, it's just the same thing every week after week. And she wanted us to, to, to do that with her. We, on the podcast, we, I mean, it's sort of, in a weird way, it's like Sex in the City. When you watch the show when it's on the air, you have your certain characters that you like and you identify with, and then after you, years after it's off the air, you watch it and you're like, wait, no, that person was shit. I'm like this one. And I have that with the Golden Girls. When I was younger, I was all about, like, Dorothy and Rose. And now, as we're doing the podcast and I'm watching the show and we're watching it more closely, I'm seeing Rue McClanahan was so incredible on that show. The vul especially episodes where she was forced to be vulnerable or there was supposed to be some slapstick moment of her being embarrassed or putting her foot in her mouth or her brother coming out to being gay or like any moment where something in Blanche's world is thrown off. She's almost like a vaudeville character. She's, she doesn't, she's spat. She's, she's all over the place. I think she's the one that is acting the most. Uh, I think Estelle is very much like Sophia, and obviously B is like Dorothy, and uh, Betty White does have a side of Rose, although to me, she's always more Sue Ann Niven. There is a real toughness to that woman, and we saw it, and it'll all be in my book, I'm not gonna say too much here, but uh, it, she's more that character, whereas Rue was really creating a full character like an actor does, and she had some really difficult turns when you think of that character and that what she had to pull off of to being that flamboyantly sexual and yet very vulnerable about the whole thing, yeah. So I, I, I so commend her to bringing the shading. And later on, after the show, she went on and did a lot of theater in New York. I got to see her do uh, the... I saw her do The Women with Jennifer Coolidge and it was, I think, Gina Gershon. It was like this crazy, wonderful cast of women... Um, and if you know the movie, it's, it's a, also a play. It started as a play. Um, give an applause for Rue McClanahan, guys, please. She's somewhere having fun. Um, so there's, of course, you wrote many great episodes of The Golden Girls. Well, I, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say what my favorite is, but if you, if, without the ones you wrote, What's your favorite episode of The Golden Girls? If you had to choose one that you didn't write, what did you, what, which, which one do you love? You're probably all going to hate me, but after uh, not being on the show, it was hard to watch. I watched maybe season two, some of three. Obviously, when they went to Golden Palace, I was curious, but it was difficult to watch it after uh, not being on it. Um, I have to say, though, the pilot, because the pilot is really where... He, the basis for these characters are. And for Susan Harris to create these four women 
It's pretty extraordinary. But then as writers, what you do is you hear what worked in the pilot, and it's up to us to see what worked and what could keep going. So like we came up with those long stories of Rose. Like we're like, oh, well, that was funny there. Well, what if she just started going off on these stories? And then we ended up, you know, like one of our lines were, you know, uh, Rose, that's how you tell a story. So making fun of her long-winded things and St. Olaf and all of that. So you get to see relationship stuff and, and what works. And that's what the fun of is. Uh, and it's an art to be able to recreate someone else's version of characters when you're writing for a, a series. You know, there's a whole art to creating characters, but then to be able to mimic and let the characters grow is, is not all writers can do that. So I, I love doing that. I love seeing what works. Um, you know, I wrote like a spec cheers and hearing characters, you know, when they come in, hey, Norm, hey, you know, just how they do it or the way Roseanne and Dan greet each other was very specific and to have that ear and to notice it and some people just don't do that. Um, so whenever Stan says spec, it's like a script based on sort of an existing show, just FYI, because we're not in L.A. <laughs> Yes, and you write it for free to give sort of the writers of that show an idea that you can write in the voice of that show that's already on the air. It's I, my co-host of the podcast, whom is amazing. Can we applaud for Carrie Doherty? Love Carrie Doherty. She likes to throw out some Hollywood words, and I'm like, I'm from Missouri. You got to keep it real, okay? Got to explain yourself. Um, so... I get now, because of the podcast and my tattoo and all these things, I get weird. It's hard under all these clothes. I'll show it afterwards. I'll show it afterwards. I'll show it afterwards. We'll take a a group picture together. But let's, let's get through the talk. I got time limit here, guys. But there are some weird Golden Girls fans encounters. Like... You have stories, I'm sure, and I want to know if you have one particularly weird one. I have been in, I, I, there have been encounters, one that I will share privately with anyone who wants to ask, because I cannot do it publicly, because it's the one I talked about earlier about the party. I can't do that. I can't do that. But ask me an hour after this, and it's a good story. You'll like it. Oh, you heard it? You, uh, did I say it on the podcast? I think I did, maybe. He knows, he knows, she knows, she knows. She listens to the podcast, okay. Well, um, but there was one where like, I was in the bathroom and I was peeing and, and someone, it was only one other man in the bathroom and I was at a show, I was performing a show but I didn't say anything about the Golden Girls. I didn't talk, I just did my stand-up set and then as he's leaving, he's just like, stay golden and just leaves. And it was the most like, what? I just got Golden Girls bombed. Like, it was so strange. So what's your weirdest... Golden Girls fan encounter. I think this one right now with, with, with you. Why do I have a feeling all your stories start with I was in a bathroom? I am in the bathroom a lot. I am. I haven't really had any. I mean, the, the great, I've only had really, really good encounters, but it's always shocking to me when young people come up to me um, at things I do or even gay bars when people find out that I wrote for it and that they can recite lines and I think that's so cool uh, and it's one of the only shows that I can think of that is so beloved by all ages and I remember feeling that literally on the first season when you're on the stage and like if you were the studio audience and I would I'm going to get up now yeah. just because I can uh, maybe I can and these would be, be all the whole actresses, and you'd be the studio audience, and you'd be laughing, and I'd be standing off to the side thinking, all these people, from little kids to grandparents, are laughing at something that came through my head. It was just an extraordinary experience. And then, I think two years ago, um, they were doing a benefit for the Celebration Theater, which is uh, the premier gay and lesbian theater in L.A., and I... They gave me my first uh, theater directing job. And I was shadowing directing, which means I followed the director around on a show because I want to direct sitcoms. And I was shadowing on Hot in Cleveland. And um, Todd Milliner, who's Sean Hayes' producing partner, said, we're doing this benefit. Uh, which Golden Girl script should we read? 
because we're going to have the cast of Hot in Cleveland read the script and charge money for a show. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? You're going to read one of mine. <laughs> and, uh, and they did. And it was the craziest experience to be sitting there hearing words I wrote as a very young, early 20s guy about women, older women. And I'm like, where did the hell did that come from? And it was very interesting. Uh, Betty White did not want to play the Betty White role. For some reason, and I think stories, that she had to be B. Arthur. She had to do Dorothy. And I think it was her just little way of, you know, getting back at her after all these years. But it was a, literally a surreal experience to be hearing these wonderful actresses reading words that I wrote as a young person and then hearing all these people... Uh, and I, I told the story before, it's the Rose's Mother episode, and I might have told it on your show, that the, um, you, you read on a Monday and you film on a Friday, and I think that Wednesday night, or Thursday, before we filmed on Friday, um, B. Arthur's mother died. And the company and Whit Thomas Harris said, we'll cancel the show, you can't do this. It's just too much for you to go. And she is a stage person, and the show must go on, and she did not want to cause millions of dollars, and she says, I'm going to do the show. And if you watch that episode, there's a scene with her and Estelle where she says, you know, thank you for not... Estelle takes her arm and says, thank you for not treating me you know, like an old lady. You treat me like a person. And every time I see that, literally the hairs on my arm stand up, and you can see in B's eyes the tears that she's holding back and how difficult that must have been for her to talk about her mother but saying it to Estelle. And it's such a beautiful moment, and I will always love B for, for going through with that and putting her heart and soul and everything into that scene, and it just makes it all the more poignant. I, I, yeah, give a round of applause for B. Arthur. I think... So she was the only one, so we discovered in that first season, because we would get sent off, um, my writing partner Jim and Christopher Lloyd, who was not even, who was his son. No, his, yeah. Yeah, the, so he, write, he created Modern Family, co-created it. And he was an uncredited writer on the show, and they threw him in our office, and they would say, go come up with five jokes for the end of the scene with B. Arthur. And we're thrown into a room, we're like, holy fuck, what do we fucking do? I can't write a joke, I'm not a joke writer, and all this stuff, you, you're questioning yourself. And we realized that with B. Arthur, she didn't need a line. All she had to do was turn and give a look, and like... And the place would go crazy with laughter. And we were like, Whew. well, that saved us a fucking lot of time because we don't have to write any lines for her. And, but what other actress can shoot a look and literally get a fucking laugh? And so, again, thank you, B. Uh, so great. Yes, B. Arthur. B. Arthur. No, there's, there's a lot of, I mean, being sort of, gay writers, but then also on a show that features all women, the role of minorities in television is, I mean, it's seriously lacking in a lot of ways, especially on network television, but even on streaming platforms too. We're seeing more diversity, of course, definitely more diversity than you're seeing in film, but there's still that hurdle that I think even minorities have to take in terms of selling shows, which you've had to go through, selling shows with minority characters, and saying that their storylines are just as valid as these straight storylines. So, like, what do you... Th a, why do you think the Golden Girls somehow was able to get beyond... Was it a different time that women were able to... Was it a heyday for women in comedy in the 1980s with, with Roseanne and Murphy Brown and, Mur and Golden Girls? And was that just an anomaly that just happened? Or is it possible that maybe it's coming back, that maybe we're seeing another wave of sort of a minorities on television and there might be another Golden Girls someday. There were like 12 questions in that. Uh, wow, uh, where do we begin? Oh, my Golden Girls. Uh, uh, there's always luckily been great women in TV 
And uh, thank God we had them from I Love Lucy and obviously the Golden Girls and then the Roseanne. And now we have it with Julie Louis-Dreyfus and Veep and there's just some great women. Uh, I have found, I don't know if you've all heard of a script I wrote called Silver Foxes, which was a gay man's Golden Girls, not a reboot. I got a lot of shit about that online. It's not a fucking reboot, okay? Some of those people were just like getting down my throat. I would never touch the Golden Girls. I mean, that is sacred. This obviously was inspired by my experience there, and there have been tons of shows of a group of four people, including Chekhov. Uh, but anyway, um, but I know it's easier for people to... Uh, it, that's a beautiful dress. Jesus, you better stand up and show that off. Oh, my God. Oh, oh my God, I have to have both those outfits. Just take them off right now. Where do you find that? Leave it to RuPaul. I know. I hate her. No, I'm kidding. Okay. I put, I put her in the Brady Bunch movies, by the way, and yet he still doesn't remember who I am when I see him in public. I'm like, excuse me, that was my idea. Whatever. Okay, um, so I'm sure he's listening and like, who did that, what? Uh, Silver Foxes, so I, we sold an idea uh, to Logo to do a gay man's Golden Girls and we did a reading in my living room because I wanted them to actually hear the script out loud rather than just imagine it. And I didn't know a lot of these actors, I just call, cold called them before I even had a script. I said, you don't know me, here's the idea, here's who I am. I called George Takei, Leslie Jordan, I didn't know. Bruce Valanche, I did know. Uh, Melissa Peterman from Reba and Baby Daddy. And Sherry O'Terry from SNL. And I did a reading in my living room that was fucking insane. It was, we were watching it and you're going, this is almost, this is so epic. This is crazy. At the end of the day, Logo was like, we don't have money to do scripted. I'm like, okay, thank you for dragging us through this. And so then I said to my agents, this was a major reading, this is a hit show, talking about the point of view of four older gay men in Palm Springs. Not one network would read the script. It's 30 some pages, it would take you a half hour. I literally would get emails saying, so the story got out about it on Huffington Post and it kind of blew up. And then the story turned when I couldn't get a network to even read it. And it came out because, twofold, they were older gay guys. They were old and they were gay. And to me, suddenly like steam was pouring out of my ears. We're in what year? And that the ageism and the homophobia, they thought that only old people would watch the show because they're old characters. And I said, uh, Golden Girls? Anybody ever seen that show? It was watched by all ages. The same thing would happen with this. And only because of social media that the networks, two of them only, were forced to read the script. There is a happy ending to it, and I can't say specifically, but I think we found a buyer that's going to have us make a pilot, and I thank everyone that helped with this because it was really an extraordinary, literally all over the world there were stories from South Africa to Germany, everywhere, talking about how wrong this was that we were not given a fair shot with this show. So I'm hoping we get to make it, and I hope you guys will support it uh, because I think it's important for our community to have those voices of older gay men and what we're dealing with. I want to add to that as well. Um, older gay men and what we're dealing with, which is, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm 35. I'm a little older. Um, but I also want to say... I got some silver in the beard. It's working on some apps. Um, but I do want to say, uh, and I think it's important to say this when we do talk about ageism, especially amongst, you know, being older and, and gay, especially gay male, the role that women play in our lives often, even within gay male circles, are, aren't valued and they aren't respected. And, and there's still a large part of the patriarchy that forgets that 
women, straight and gay, have, play a huge role in gay men's lives. And I think that we need to, when we talk about gay male issues, we need to remember that it was women who were getting us through HIV AIDS in a lot of ways. It was women who went with you to the premieres so that the studios didn't know. And, and so in, in talking about it, I think, and even with talking in The Golden Girls, the importance of women within the conversation, even when we're talking about being a gay male writer in Hollywood, you know? Um, you wanted to say? Well, when I got nominated for my second uh, Writers Guild for award for uh, Roseanne, the lesbian kiss episode, we still couldn't bring... Yeah. So, I know. So my date was Margaret Cho, I'm just saying. <laughs> I showed them, didn't I? Yeah, fuck them. Uh, still lost. Fuck them all. Uh, maybe one day. Uh, yes. And a lot of times on writing staffs, I would, there would not be any women on staff, and I would have to be the one to say, uh, we can't say that. That's sexist. Or the character description people would come in with, but she's pretty. I'm like, and? You know, I like to write a whole paragraph to give actors and so they have something real to come in and chew on and not just pretty or attractive or the wife of or the girlfriend of. And so that's kind of been a mission of mine and it's and so great and I've been able to help a lot of um, young women writers. I just helped a uh, first-time sale to a young woman writer uh, for YouTube Red, a really cool show that uh, we just sold the pilot. And so that's been great to, and that's been what, the wonderful thing about having some little working in the business uh, uh, of being able to help other people, you know, lifting with the hand up. And it, it's so gratifying to, to see that and hopefully a new generation of, of people. And that's what I always say. I have so much hope for the world and how fucked up it is right now that I feel like young people are really our savior because they're not as um, messed up in the head about all these issues. Yeah, that's definitely, I mean, even, I worked on a show a couple of years ago and I literally was the only minority on the show, on both staff and on it, meaning there was no person of color, there was no women, it was all straight white men. And every time something came up, I even had this one conversation where I started calling some of the men boy because they kept calling women girls, and I was like, well, I'm just going to call them boys then and see how weird that is for them to hear because to them, they're just guys or men. They're not boys. And so it's, there's this, it's, it's this weird thing in our heads that we think we can do this, and, it's, and I like that you're doing that, and I think it's more important to, have, to be pushing more minority voices, which I think brings us back to the group that's here tonight. And how, and I, my final question before we start taking questions from the audience how do you think, because everyone here loves the Golden Girls, right? And you love what the Golden Girls represented in, for your lives and our lives and, and our community lives in some ways, queer community and what they do for us. So what advice would you give to a Golden Girls fan for taking the spirit of the Golden Girls and the things that we love about the Golden Girls and applying it to life and our work and our art and what we do in a time that is, like you said, very fucked up? Well, at the end of the day, what did they all do? They sat down with cheesecake, and they loved each other. And in these times, we really have to just love one another. There's so much divisiveness and hate about people that are other, and the fact that these four women that were very different did love each other at the end of the day. And so I just say, put out love. And for me, and what's so beautiful about this and the art is I, I, I think I've directed six plays this year. After November and the election, the day after I pulled my covers over my head and that lasted for maybe a couple hours and the next morning I'm like, fuck no. I'm getting up every day, and I'm going to create art and something, and I'm going to uh, make people laugh, make people think. Uh, we just can't stop, and that's why I've been relentless. I haven't slept. I love Red Bull, sugar-free. Uh, we just have to keep making art and putting love out there, and that's why what, everything around here is so fucking beautiful, 
And I thank you guys for inspiring all of this. And I hope I brought a little bit to this evening and this event. And thank you all for inviting us here. It was really cool. Yes, thank you. And I want to say, before we start taking questions from the audience, um, and that the cheesecake is from Travis Marley Cheesecake. Round of applause for Travis Marley Cheesecake. Bash Party Goods for the plates and the services and stuff. The gallery is open until the 28th, and everything is for sale, so jump on that. Break out your credit cards, do your things, and, every, and 40% of the proceeds goes to trans women of color and SAGE, which helps LGBT seniors. Yes. So to give some of that love back to Stan, if you have any questions for either of us, now would be a good time. I think I'll get up and maybe walk to people who have questions so that we can get them. Yeah. Well, we only have the one mic, though, so it might just be, if you could come forward... Uh, that probably is easiest. Do you want to come forward? Look at, there we go. Perfect. So say your name and your question. Okay. I'm Liz. Um, you've probably heard this a thousand times, but why did they get rid of Coco? Uh, it's not a homophobic thing. I think they really realized that Sophia was not going to be a regular character. She's going to be recurring. Recurring means you'd be on maybe seven of 12, 13 episodes. She was so fantastic. She filled that need. They, we didn't need Coco, as wonderful as Coco was. Uh, so, it, I mean, I applaud them for even thinking at that time to actually have a regular gay character that just was not even in anyone's imagination. So it's, it's nothing crazy or weird <laughs> yeah what's your question I feel like Oprah I love this oh, hi I'm what's Mike, your name Mike and um, one of the great things I think about the writing with the Golden Girls is the social commentary for the times and the, the diversity of topics that you handled with humor so bravo for that my question was were there any topics that were off limit or that um, you were told you could not do or write about hard hitting questions stand to you uh, no. I was there the first season, so we were just discovering the characters and figuring out really who they were, and that's the beauty of the first season. Later on, they did get into more serious subjects, and back then, you know, Facts of Life had, you know, a very special episode. So there were shows dealing with that, not regularly, but there was never anything we couldn't talk about. And again, the more successful the show you are, they can't fight with ratings. So they're like, well, do what you want to do. You know? But in the beginning, when you're starting out, especially first season, everyone is acting out of fear, which I hate. I do love that they never really had a special episode. It was always sort of like, yeah, she has chronic fatigue syndrome, but also, like, it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hi. So I wanted to um, ask you, oh, thank you. My name is Ashanti. Hi, and I've been trying to write a script for the last two to three weeks. Have you ever had writer's block? And if so, what did you do to get over it? Okay, I'm getting my step goal today, 12,000. Like a Fitbit or something, right? Is that what the, that's what that is? Okay, oh, Apple Watch, whatever. Uh, he gets things for free. How do I do get that? Uh, I hate to say it, but no. I've never had writer's block. Um, I just, I, I, what I, if, if I ever have uh, questions in my mind, for some reason water helps me. So I either wash dishes or take a shower or I, get, I have this little pool thing, which my writing partner will say, I'm leaving, you get in the pool. And literally 20 minutes later, I'll be like texting, I got, what about this? What about that? So... Um, what I just, as I said two seconds ago, I hate fear. I decided years ago, my mantra was uh, take fear off the table. And you all know the actress Susie Kurtz? Yes, yeah. Yeah, we love Susie. Anyway, she was guesting, uh, did an arc on a TV show, and, and she was like, How do you do it? I get so scared every time I take on a new role. How do you do a show every week and create something? 
And I said to her, I decided to take fear off the table. And I just, in my head, I told myself, I'm going to do it. There's no question at the end of the day, I'm going to have the idea. The script is going to all come together. How I get there, I don't fucking know. And trust, another thing I say is trust the rhythm of life. So a lot of people like to get stuck in, oh, what if, what if the drama of it? Just tell yourself, you know what? And I know it's going to be difficult because you probably don't believe it right now that you will figure it out and enjoy the ride till you get there. You hate me now, right? I do. You had a question. You come up for it? Yeah. Hi, my name's Alfredo. Um, I'm single. Single. Um, so picture it, 1986, New Jersey, in a household of Puerto Rican um, woman who's been here for 30 years, can barely speak English, and two sisters and a gay brother who was still in the closet. Um, would love watching your show. And my mother would watch it with us. I knew she'd understand half the stuff that was going on, but she would just watch me cracking up. Um, though the one line is, be Arthur always made me laugh. I think she, I'm challenging her sometimes. But I would laugh, and then five minutes later, commercial would come on and bust out laughing again. And I remember just my mother like, looking at me like, what is honest, you know, not knowing what I was laughing about, but just knowing that I enjoyed it. And my sisters would hear me too. We would never miss an episode. So, and then reruns upon reruns upon reruns upon reruns, and there can never be enough. So thank you so much. That was praise, not a question. And I love it, more of that. Yeah, you had a question over here. This is like early Oprah, this really is. This is how she got skinny. Right, right, okay. Um, and I hope I'm not bringing this to an uncomfortable, Maureen, hi, by the way. Um, I, I kind of wanted to sort of touch on what you said at the last, minute before we turned it over to questions. And this is just basically a statement that what you said sort of brought to the forefront of my mind. Um, when the election happened and our president was elected, and I do apologize if I'm stepping on toes or offending anyone here, but my mother and I were bawling our eyes out. We were crying and we couldn't believe what had happened. And my mom looked at me um, and she said, you know what we're gonna do? Because I asked her, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do for the next four years? I mean, at the very least, the next four years. And she said, you know what we're gonna do? You're going to take every opportunity you can to do good, to do extra good, to, um, to love someone that you think, even if you just think that they seem like they need some love or they need a hug or to do just the extra good. And so, um, the last thing that you had commented on really struck a chord with me. And um, again, I apologize. I know that's political. I hope I'm not offending anyone. But um, I hope everybody here and everybody for the next three years, we almost have a year gone, almost, almost, um, that we all just do what we can to just do some extra good and to love a little more. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. It's like when Dorothy met George H.W. Bush and she was just like, I'm going to give him some words. And then it was. Speaking of Bush, and uh, I'll just name drop maybe one more time. Uh, I think after Bush was elected, it was like we had Clinton and we all thought like, oh, my God, we're finally there. And then Bush happened. I'm like, what the? And I remember being out to dinner. Here's the name. Here comes two names. Lily Tomlin, Jane Wagner. Yeah, there you go. And I was with her and my good friend, Allie Willis, who wrote The Color Purple and Friends and Boogie Wonderland and blah, blah, blah. And we were having dinner, and I was like, Lily, you're, you know, she's a goddess. And I was like, explain this to me. How does this happen? And she said, which I'm going to hold on to so tight for the next three and a half years, she says, politics is like a pendulum. Remember, we had Obama all the way in the things, everything with gay marriage and gays in the army. We swung all the fucking way back here. Hold on tight. We're going to swing back. Trust, trust, but stay woke. Every day we have got to stay woke or else we're going to get stepped on. So, anyway. Amen. Stay woke. What other questions do we have? Do you have a question? Over here. What's your name? My name's Sarah. Um, I have so many questions for you, but first I want to thank you. The double episodes got me through a really tough time after graduating from college. What am I going to do? Oh, it was terrible, but 
It was a good nap track, and also I've watched. My favorite episode is when they go to jail on suspicion of... That's my favorite episode. It's one of my... I like the AIDS one. Oh, that one's so good. But um, anyway, were you involved in that, or was that later? Okay, um, one more. Was there any animosity on the set because it is rumored, like, between certain of the characters? Ooh, you're asking Stan to spill the tea. Spill the tea. Drop some cheesecake. Don't make me answer that. What can I say? I think this is on a live podcast or something. I mean, everyone knows there was weirdness with Betty and B, right? We all know that. Uh, there was a little weirdness with Betty and Estelle. Um, she would joke to the studio audience when Estelle would drop lines, and that means she wouldn't remember the lines. And that was hard. You know, she, I don't think she meant it to be mean. I hope not. But I think she was being funny because the audience, we had to do scenes over. And again, back then, we didn't know about dementia. We, didn't, we just thought, well, she's out partying because she's new in Hollywood and she's not studying her lines. And really, when you look at it, if you watch some of the scenes and she's eating raisins, it's because we wrote some of her lines on her hand. And that's how she got through a lot of the lines. So there was that. But at the end of the day, they did all really, 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 really respect each other. And they all brought something so different. So like in any work situation or fam, like Thanksgiving coming up, I mean, we have differences. And the way we live our lives and the way we approach acting. So those do come up because you're with these people literally from 8 in the morning till five, six, sometimes 11 o'clock at night. But they're all professionals and they all got through it and you can see the love, obviously, in the shows. There was also, when, right before Rue McClanahan, well, before Rue McClanahan passed away, whenever she did live things, like, you know, she would do appearances and stuff, there was one appearance I remember at Comics, it's an old comedy club in New York that doesn't exist anymore, and it was uh, Sorted Lives, they were doing a Sorted Lives show there, and she was on that, and she told this story, because she got asked a lot about the animosity between B. Arthur and Betty White, and she told this story about B. Arthur's one-woman show, and how she went to go see the one-woman show, and she, she would preface this, this story by saying, this can only stay in this room. It can't leave this room. You can't tell anyone. And she would tell this story, and it would be this epic story about B. Arthur and having this great show, and then they meet afterwards, and they're drinking, and she's getting more and more drunk, and B. Arthur's getting very, very drunk, and it ends with B. Arthur going, and she's like, come close, come close. And it's like this, you're waiting for this one line from Rue McClanahan, and Rue McClanahan then says, Betty's a cunt. And... <laughs> And she would say that, and it would get a huge laugh, of course. And you would think, this is like a private story that, you know, whatever. And then when Rue McClanahan died in the New York Times, they had, for, uh, for a story they did on Rue McClanahan, they had, like, people talking about this story that they were like, Rue McClanahan said we couldn't talk about it. She told this story to everybody, <laughs> everywhere she went. And she would say, don't tell anyone. So it just, it just, yeah. As you all know, like, Betty is very into animals. I always thought she dealt better with animals than with people. So you put those two together. They all loved animal. There's a great video of B. Arthur saying, um, don't use a certain drug because it's made with horse urine. That's it. That's all I got with that one. Uh, any other questions? Good on questions? Yes. Oh, come this way. Hi, I'm Monica. I'm just curious about what you're doing now. Besides being single. Hey, you wanted me to push it out. I don't want to push it at all, but he is, so he's a catch. Um, yes, I am doing something. It's going to bring the room down, but I really would love to bring it up. It's in New York City, November 2nd. It's not a long train ride, because I took it today, but I would love to see you all there. I am doing a show about uh, five years ago. A very good friend of mine took his life, and I created a theater piece using real suicide notes uh, and read like the vagina monologues by actors. It's called Right Before I Go. It's November 2nd at Town Hall on 43rd Street. We're going to have an all-star cast. 
Michael Wilson is directing it. He directed Cicely Tyson and the Trip to Bountiful on Broadway and a bunch of other things. Um, and uh, in it, we use suicide notes from like Kurt Cobain and war veterans and LGBTQ members and kids that were bullied and uh, Virginia Woolf, famous and not famous people. And my dream is to create a foundation like Vagina Monologues where when the play is licensed, the money goes back to suicide prevention and awareness. So this is how we're doing a benefit premiere to launch the show. It's only an hour. It has a lot of hope in it. And it's about starting the dialogue about a very sensitive subject. So I'm not just comedy, but this is very, very important. I, didn't, I don't know how many people here have been touched by this subject. I'm sure a lot. And uh, so I would love to see you there if you can be there or spread the word about the show because I think it's important that we um, start talking about it and hopefully save some lives. Yay. And... I think I just want to end on saying thank you to Stan for coming out and doing this. Yes, thank you for being a friend. Thank you all for being a friend. So lovely. I love it. And part of being a friend is showing love. And we talked a lot about love tonight. And I think um, one of the reasons why we're here and the, one of the reasons why all of you are sitting in this audience and one of the reasons why all of this great work is on these walls and these things is because of two people who loved each other and decided to get married and thought that their love could do something to create a community event that allowed people to be represented. And so we want to thank Nick and Zach for putting all of this together and taking the ultimate statement of thanking you for being a friend. So thank you for having us. And we thank you guys for coming out tonight. Thank you so much. I feel like this needs to end on everybody like singing or something. I don't know. But thank you guys again. <laughs>